0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day.
1: Welcome to Behind the Knife. We are continuing our series from ASCRS. And today is a very special episode as I get to interview once again my mentor, Dr. Sharon Stein. I'm joined with Dr. John Abelson. As you know, that we, uh, Dr. Abelson and I, have been. Uh, providing you highlights from the ASCRS, everything that you missed and everything that you need to know um, from colorectal surgery world. So without much further ado, we're going to get started with Dr. Stein. Very quick introduction for our listeners who do not know Dr. Stein. She's a colorectal surgeon at University Cleveland Medical Center Hospital, a professor of surgery at Case Western. She is a director at University Hospital's UH Rises program, and she's had outstanding contributions to her patients' university, as well as the colorectal literature. She has served as the president of the Association of Women's Surgeons, and she's currently on the Executive Council of the American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons. This year, Dr. Stein served as the program chair of the 22 annual scientific meeting. And we are very excited to have this one-on-one time with her.
0: Thank you so much for carving out a few minutes of a very, very busy schedule, I imagine, to chat with us. I think one of one of my main questions that I've been wondering is what exactly goes into organizing a meeting like this? And, and so from you know, you, you know, over the several months, years weeks leading up to the meeting, um, you know, and then the day-to-day stuff, right? So I, I can only imagine the the schedule that needs to be adhered to in order to make sure that something like this runs smoothly. So interested to hear your take on that.
2: Well, first of all, thank you guys both so very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here and I'm delighted that you're highlighting American Society of Colorectal Surgeons on um, Behind the Knife. Obviously, we all love and listen to Behind the Knife uh, um, quite a bit. So it's it's fun to be part of it. So in terms of organizing, gosh, it's been about trying to remember exactly when it was. It's probably at least 20 months that we've been at work at this. So Tom Reed, who is our current president, um, gave me the honor of asking me to lead up the charge to do this meeting. And then we chatted a little bit about the the first part. It was talking about who was going to help us. Um, and putting together a group. And I am so super fortunate because I have what I think is truly the dream team. Um, Jason Hall, who kind of led up the effort on Symposium. Lillian Chen, who has a strong educational interest and uh, led up our interest on workshops, our our program on workshops. And then um, Jonathan Mitchum, who is a great researcher. So we gave him big abstracts. So it was kind of nice because we each had, I certainly, as they will all tell you, oversaw things, but everyone had kind of their space. I will say we worked really, really well together, which was really kind of fun. I mean, particularly in COVID when we didn't have the opportunity to get together as other organizing groups can in person, uh, I didn't have really strong relationships with Lillian and and John before this. And it's just been wonderful. They will be friends for life, no doubt. I'm just from, and this is, we saw each other the first time before, you know, kind of in terms of working on this meeting, at the meeting jason and i go way back so i've known him for a long time but um it was really nice because what would happen was i think we did the thinking part really as a group and then we did some of the logistics kind of more as breakout if that makes sense so what we started doing was kind of thinking about what we wanted out of this meeting and we knew that we were coming out and hoping we were going to be in person although you know 20 months ago, we didn't really know what was going to be going on with COVID at all. Um, But thinking about this, okay, it's going to be an in-person meeting. This gives us a great opportunity to kind of turn things on its head a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can kind of come back to some of the things we did turn on its head. But really rethinking, gosh, what should the meeting look like? What will it be? Um, I will say one of the things that was really important to all of us was a focus on diversity. And there's no way that you could have gone through the last two years and not realize how very important it is to be diverse. And in every stage of our planning, um, we looked at diversity. So we looked at diversity in a lot of different ways. Um, We looked at gender diversity, which I've obviously done a lot of work in and things like that. We looked at race, ethnicity, um, we looked at age. So one of the things you'll see is that we created the social media moderator program. So basically that was people a year and a half out of practice, or almost two years now out of practice, who we particularly asked to be on the podium, to get the opportunity to moderate, to do our social media, because we know that they're smarter than us, um, and put them in those places. But not just having the old fogies, sorry, all the old fogies like me, on the podium is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, we also decided that we weren't going to let anybody be on the podium more than twice. And except for a couple fill-ins that we have had to do, I think we did a pretty good job of that. Yeah. Um, and most people are on only once. So we have 503 different speakers at this meeting, right? So we have, including online, we are approaching 2000. I think by the time our numbers are done, we will have had 2000 attendees. Then we can talk a little bit about that, but a quarter of them, have a speaking role at this, instant, at this meeting, which is so cool. And then we thought about in diversity, just to stick there for a minute, we thought about what kind of practice do you have, right? And are you in private practice? Are you in a hospital-based? Are you VA? Are you missionary? Um, do you do locum tenens, right? We want to talk about a bunch of, have a bunch of different people. So it's not all the same because I think what happens is like, it's much easier for me to get people who are like me, right? I am a white academic woman surgeon who does a lot of like big cases, right? So I don't necessarily think about someone who does mostly anal rectal or colonoscopies, but those are all part of our practice. And those are all part of our specialty. And those are all part of people. We want to have a home at ASCRS. So doing that was really, really, really important. And then I will say, just sticking with that diversity. We also thought about diversity throughout the program. Mm -hmm. So we wanted the to be diverse. So you hopefully, those of you who've tuned in and you can still tune in online, um, can see sprinkled throughout it that there are diversity sessions. Like one of my favorite was um, Colorectal Practice, It's Not Your Mother's Practice. Yeah. Where we talk about gen- transgender surgery, right? Mm-hmm. That wasn't something we were talking about. We did a social media program, but we didn't do the same social media talks that other people did. We did more advanced kind of different types of social media um, talks. And we really just thought about what that, what was going to be in terms of the planning. We also used some evidence-based things to do and went back to some of the data. So we are lucky enough that ASCRS and the staff, I I just have to give a shout out because the staff are just amazing. There's no way that this would happen without our amazing, amazing ASCRS staff. So we're really, really lucky. Um, But what they did was they gave us a list of kind of problem areas for for surgeons right from where people wanted to see things in the past based on past reviews and they also looked at in conjunction with the board some areas where people are weaker Mm -hmm. and so those became areas of emphasis where we wanted to have things Um, we also kind of turned a little bit of the learning style on its head so we did these super sessions right and there's um, some evidence around doing something like this. So we have expert talks to start off each of our super sessions, right? And we did them on what it would call the big six in colorectal, which is rectal cancer, colon cancer, diverticulitis, IBD, pelvic floor, and anorectal, kind of our big six major categories. Yeah. So each of those has its own super session where there's the expert talks. And normally at the end of the expert talks, you have a little Q&A. No one ever has time for Q&A because we run out of time because we all talk too long. I do. But what we did was, Those are set. Then we do the best of the best abstracts. So we get some actual new research and some new data, hopefully into those sessions. And then we made the Q and a separate case-based scenario. So for each of those, you get this kind of power of rectal cancer, you know, like diverticular um, disease, you know, all of those types of things. Those are things we wanted to change. We also thought a little bit about the structure. And again, not having been there for a little while, everyone's thermostats are kind of reset because they haven't been at ASCRS. So we turned the entire meeting around. We said in this day and age, particularly if we're talking about people who are not in academics, taking time off is a big deal, right? We're all behind on cases. We all don't get enough of our time. You know, there's lots of stuff going on. Let's give the weekend significant content. In the past, there'd always been courses on the weekend. Correct. We made the meeting start on Saturday morning. Yeah. The opening was midday Saturday, which allowed people who needed to fly in a Saturday time to do that. But we did an allied um, practitioner course on Saturday morning. And then we did a private practice course on Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the courses were moved to the end. And this allowed us to say, there are lots of people where you know someone comes in for two days, someone else comes in for two days and we kind of swap out during the meeting. So there's some coverage at home. Send your senior person in for the beginning. Right. And then send your junior person in at the end for the courses. So you can swap and you can feel like, okay, there's content there. And we tried to sprinkle things around so people who came at the end wouldn't have missed out on the rectal cancer session. There's a rectal cancer session the last day and there's one towards the beginning. And there's, you know, tried to make sure that there was enough content in all different
1: places. And balanced. Yeah. Yes. If I could summarize whatever you said in like one sentence, it would be what a well thought endeavor. Thank you. Because like you said, there are all these like nuances that you don't think about. And I feel like this, the, the the reason why this meeting has been so successful is because it was so well thought out, whether it's about like seniors versus juniors, attendings, needing coverage, wanting to come, residents wanting to come, but it, it presenters, poster presenters on Saturday and Sunday being able to attend and not take time off of clinicals. Every little bit has been well thought out. And cherry on the cake, the live stream. It has been amazing. Talk to us a little bit about that. How did you come up with the schedule? And um, I'm sure COVID, the one thing that has come, has been the best thing out of this pandemic, and we never let a pandemic go to waste like this day, is that you know we are, we are so attuned to the on-demand and live, uh, live stream. And it has been phenomenal. And so tell us a little bit about that because it's hard. It's a hard balance to achieve where you want people to come in person, but then you also don't want to lose your audience who are at home covering hospitals.
2: Yeah. So um, first of all, thank you very much. And again, all the kudos to my team. Like they've been amazing throughout. So we wanted people to be able to get here and we really wanted to have this live meeting, but we also knew whether it was because of COVID and we've had people calling in, you know, like families who get sick and, you know, there, there've been lots of people, lots of different reasons. And then just the regular reasons, right? Life happens. Sometimes there's something that comes up and you can't make it to the meeting. So we wanted people to have the opportunity to be there and we wanted to leverage the technology we've done two years. And I just all the kudos to um, you know, the last two teams who put together completely remote movie, uh, remote uh, programs this year, we were able to leverage that technology and combine it. And so what we decided to do was that those big, those big six section sessions, along with all of the, um, named lectureships would be live streamed. And the really, really cool part is that everything is being taped and everything will be available probably in a couple weeks. Um, on through our website and through ascrsu so you will be able to access all of the content for a full 79 semi credits out of the meeting and the really cool thing it was so much fun on twitter and everything we're seeing people telling us hey i'm not i'm not there but i'm watching this on a live stream and it's been awesome um i will say to our production company has just been terrific they've been wonderful to work with and they've just really done a nice job of kind of packaging the meeting so it's really there for the people who are on site and then using our social media moderators, so you can kind of talk to us about the people who are at home and look at those types of things we also can have a great experience when you you know you're, you weren't able to come to the meeting yeah
0: i have to say I'm, I'm i'm certainly appreciative of the opportunity to be able to be on the podium like you were alluding to and be one of the social media moderators i know a couple of folks in my cohort were able to do that as well so thank you for that opportunity thanks for doing it um on a day-to-day basis so like yesterday what was your day like
2: <laughs> what was my day like um so yesterday I think I woke up I, at like five or something like that I went and worked out um wow. got ready for I did a little workout um I got ready I got ready for the day um came over here. I'm just trying like yesterday. Is so long ago, I can tell you <laughs> what I did this morning. I'm trying to remember. Um, I, I came over here to just kind of start things off. I I'm really trying to stop in and see people as much as possible. Um, maybe it's just kind of who I am, but I really want to say thank you to everyone who was part of this meeting and, and did something. So I'm really trying to hit each of the symposium, each of the things so I can, you know, 630 in the morning, I want to be here and, and starting to, you know, talk to the people who are here and, and doing the first sessions. Um, so kind of went by the yoga, came over the, uh, yesterday morning was LGBTQT breakfast. So I went over to, to be part of that, um, came over here, was in time for the first session in the main hall, ran downstairs to go, um, go kind of welcome the people who are coming in, you know, like the speakers and the moderators for the sessions downstairs, try to go over to the exhibition center during all the breaks or anytime I can to thank them for being there and tell them about what we're doing on Twitter and the fact that we have hashtags for each of the major sessions and say, Hey, you know, Hey, you're doing an ultrasound. You're selling ultrasound. You might want to key into the pelvic floor stuff that's going on, you know, hashtag pelvic floor. And, you know, you over there, you're doing, Oh gosh, you've got mesh. Let's talk about abdominal wall. That's going to be a great session. So in each place, really just trying to figure out what their connection is, Mm -hmm. because I think that's, I mean, this gets into kind of vendors and everything, but I think that's why they're here, right? Is to make connection with us. And if we can link connection with vendors to content, and hopefully we can create stronger, you know, connections in a really good way where we're doing something, They're, they're giving us, you know, information and we can give them back content. So, and it should work in a really good way. So after all of that and everything kind of running back and forth, um, I think the day here ended and then went over to the DCR um, reviewers guild um, party and then finished the night around 11 o'clock at the presidential uh, uh, reception. So, you know, it's, it's just been a little bit like that. And then, you know, sometimes you feel a little bit like a handler trying to, you know, make Tom has a bunch of people helping him, but you know, kind of like make sure he's there checking in. You know, you got, hey boss, you got something to do? You got you got water going? You know, you all okay? <laughs> and, um, entertaining Carla Pugh, our Bacon lecturer um, came in yesterday, so I wanted to make sure she made it to the presidential reception. Some of our international guests brought them over to the DCR event. Just just trying to take care of people. I like. I guess I like my hostess. <laughs>
1: Or a bride all over again. This sounds like planning a wedding times pounds uh, My feet <laughs> hurt, I haven't eaten, I haven't slept, and my voice is going a little
2: hoarse. Yeah, yeah. there you go. But I've <laughs> talked to a lot of people. Yeah,
1: shaking a lot of hands. That's, that sounds about right. Uh, well, kind of shifting gears to like a little bit more about your personal um, uh, balance. How did you, you know, you said you've been planning this for like about 20 months. So yeah. Um, Your clinical work didn't stop. Your research endeavors back home didn't stop. Um, And on top of that, you had this huge responsibility of uh, putting this in-person get-together back. And so um, how did you strike a balance between all these things? And uh, what are some of the things and pearls that you can um, provide to our audience here? So I guess a number of
2: things. I think the first thing I will say is your team matters, right? Your team matters in both places. So my team matters at home, um, you know, kudos to those at UH Rises, which is our research enterprise. And, you know, Dr. Steinagen, who like is always there, my partner, who's always there to kind of help me out. So I'll just give her a shout out. You know, she's probably carried more of the burden of stuff that was going on at home. Right. And there are shifts right? Uh, you know, we talk about work-life balance. It's more like, you know, work-life integration. This is this is conference work integration, right? Um, so you have to have a really good team and you have to have really solid people in lots of different places. I generally had two weekly calls a week. So that was, um, you know, one call with our uh, Christy Conley, who is our uh, basically the person who is the architect of all things conference. Um, amazing. It's an amazing, amazing job um, from ASCRS. And then my entire team met every uh, Thursday at five o'clock. You know, there'd be a couple times that I missed it, but I, I will say, you know, sometimes I would not book a case because I was like, that case is going to go a little bit long and I need to be there for my Thursday meeting. And that would include, you know, in addition to all the co-chairs, um, Tom Reed was there for the meetings as well as staff staffers. So, The way you balance it is, I I think there are times where the intensity went up, like around abstract season, Um, that was a really intense time. So I kind of knew that a couple weekends, I was going to be, you know, just working on that. And John Mitchum did a yeoman's job regarding that. Um, Same thing happened when we were getting in for reviewing symposium, you know, we had to check everyone's and talk about process, right? check everyone's conflict of interest. So we checked all of our moderators before we asked them um, because we want to make sure that the information our membership is getting is unbiased as much Mm -hmm. as possible, right? We all have biases, but as much as possible without corporate influence, I would say. So we would check all the moderators and we did some of that on a phone call. I remember there was like a four hour phone call where we just went through moderators and we talked about it and, you know, Hey, you know, John's going to look up this one. Jason's going to look up this one. Lillian's checking this and we're updating things as we go. You know, we're all at CMS, um, openpayment.gov and checking so that we tried to minimize the conflicts that would happen after we name people. So we tried not to name the person. And if you have a conflict of interest, it didn't mean you couldn't participate. It just meant that rather than doing the session on what you are getting paid for, maybe you're going to do one on moving on and moving up, which is going on right now. So, um so those types of things, there were there were definitely time spent. And then, you know, of course, my family too, right? I have team at home as well. And they also, there were lots of afternoons and evenings and things like that where I just wasn't available. Um, I will just say, because I think it's really important as we're talking about the conference, it is such an honor to be asked to do this, to be able to put your stamp on a society that you care so much about mm-hmm. and that matters so much to you is really just i mean i I, I don't know you know that there's a better honor out there i mean it just to look around and be like wow look we thought about it and it worked Worked. (laughs) (laughs) is so much fun and to have people i mean i keep saying you know we could probably put you all in a room with like uh, the textbook and if you were all together you guys would have been happy this meeting but um just to see happy people's faces um, back here together again, um has been just really tremendous. Wonderful.
0: I guess one sort of follow- up that you mentioned, maybe not booking a case because you knew you had this you know, responsibility you need to do. Was there anything formal in terms of your sort of appointment or you know salary or anything like that not to get into too much detail of that. but you know at the end of the day, a lot of what we do is about productivity, you know our and research and stuff. So, um, you know, was there just sort of an acknowledgement within the group that, okay, for the next 20 months, this is going to take up a big chunk of time. So no, I'm not going to be able to book that extra case uh, of somebody coming in.
2: Um, I, I would say not really. I think when you take something on of this magnitude, you know, I think there are different ways different people would do it. Um, that doesn't tend to be the way that my practice works. Um and I am fortunate enough that I do have some administrative time and I do have some opportunity to have a little leeway in that way. Um sometimes you do more on other days or or do things a little bit differently. But you know, and maybe in some ways I was lucky too. Like not not to say COVID was lucky, but you know, we had stops and starts during COVID. And so productivity has been a little funny for all of us this few years anyway, and we've had some kind of open time that we didn't expect. And, you know, I never thought about it before. It's a great question. Um, and it'd be interesting to see how people did it in other times, but maybe that in some way enabled me to do some of that. And I think, again, it's just, it's about your team. And I think this is a really, really important mission. Um, hopefully my institution and my team at home, my partners, um, re-benefits from, you know, kind of like our institution being uh, elevated to be able to do this. So
1: absolutely kind of who I'm totally turning the conversation, but, you know, we um, as junior residents, senior residents look up to you and like, you know, see you, you see you on Twitter and see you at this, like such a great academic um, slash clinical slash surgeon position And I'm sure that there were people that you looked up to when you are, you know, taking on this, like, like you said, like such a big magnitude opportunity. Uh, Who did you look up to? Who were your people that inspired you to do this? Gosh, there's so many people
2: who've inspired me in so many different ways. Um, In terms of doing this, I will say, you know, I was Brad Champagne's partner when he was the program director for uh, Mike Stamos. Um, so I think I had a little bit of an insight into kind of what I was getting into. I also had the privilege of uh, being planning the association of women surgeons uh, meeting. So I do that. I'm, I'm a little bit of a planner, right? I do the career course. Um, I, I guess i planned a lot of meetings if I actually go back and think about it. So this was something that I felt like was um, well within my wheelhouse. I will say that in terms of mentorship isn't, there's so many, so many different ways and so many different places that you get mentors. Um, You know, here at ASCRS, I would say Pat Roberts is someone who I think is amazing and inspires me in so many different ways. Um, Not in the least, the fact that she has pivoted her career once again and is doing a course out at Stanford right now. She he has been, you know, board president. She's been uh, president of ASCRS. She's been a clinical leader. She's brilliant. Um, and, and just someone I, I very much look up to. You know, I've watched uh, Tom Reed through this year. I've had the privilege of having him on my speed dial and watching his leadership throughout this year. It's just, you know, inspirational as well. I think so many, there's so many great people. And I think what I do at least is take a little bit from this person, a little bit from that person, um in order to kind of compile what it is i've also and i know you know you and i have had some conversations things i've really walked my own path i would say to some extent too i've made some really non-traditional decisions in my career that at sometimes interfered with some of the mentorship because people didn't believe in the decisions i was making um just to be transparent probably the most uh, the big one was that when my daughter was a year old and I'm married to a surgeon, so like life was crazy. I decided to go to four days a week. And so I work clinically four days a week. I um that has enabled me to do things like this, I think, that I probably would never have been able to have the capacity to do if I hadn't made that decision. Um what I will say in that decision, this is getting a little bit off topic, but is that it allowed me to be clinically busy. So Let's take away the conference thing and then not, I'm not going to work late on Thursdays, Wednesday's my day off. So Tuesdays and Thursdays, I know are going to be my late days, but I don't have as much resentment about working late on Tuesday and Thursday, because Wednesday I'm going to pick my daughter up from school and that matters to me. Right. And I can do my meetings that I need to do, take extra meetings. I can put extra things on that day. I can do all you know types of stuff that I need to do academically, personally, you know, get my house done, whatever it is. But it gave me that capacity to taking the pressure off of that one day allowed me to put more pressure, I think, on other days. And it allowed me to be actually more clinically busy uh, after I made that decision. I think there's something there's some pretty good data that your rest periods are as important as your work periods and yeah. all types of things. And that gave me a little bit of a rest period, right? Most of us don't actually have that worked into our schedule. Mm -hmm. And so I could increase my intensity on my other four days because I had decreased my intensity overall.
1: Yeah. And that talk about the work uh, life integration that we talked about, right? Like this, is this is the kind of, and thank you for giving the example of your admin days and your, your week, because um, as junior attendings, you're getting into this. You don't know how to leverage the system. You don't know what your options are. And this really provides, you know, an example of how you can do and do it all. I think said. it's not, I think it, everyone's exam, everyone's decision-making is their own.
2: And I think this is really important. Um, male, female, non-binary, you know, whatever position you are, you know, whether your private practice, I think you have to find out what works for you. But, you know, there's the expression, you can have it all. You just can't have it all at once. Um, you have to figure out what is it that you're willing to give up in order to get things. So I get a huge, like walking around here, as tired as maybe I may be I'm as scratchy as my voice is right now. I have a huge inspiration from walking around here and having done this, right? I it really means something to me that I had this opportunity. So what did I give up? Well, maybe I gave up a little bit of money. My clinical productivity wasn't quite as busy. Um I probably gave up a little bit of time with my family, you know, um, but this is something that fills up my gas tank, right? And so I need to do this. And you know, now ten years ago or almost eleven years ago, I made that decision to to give up some finances so that I could do things like this. And making those decisions and deciding. What are the things that you want to do, you personally need to do, or your your partner needs to do, or whoever's important in your life needs to do? And what are the things you don't need to do? I will say, and this is, I'm getting a little preachy, but we are extraordinarily fortunate in the fact that we make a good living, right? And you can complain about how much I make versus someone else makes or whatever, but we all do pretty well. And so take some of those things off your plate that don't mean anything to you, I do not enjoy, as much as I like poop, I do not enjoy washing toilets, right? I don't I do not do that. You know, that's not going to be something that I'm going to do on a regular basis. Where you find those things, just do it and let it go that you, maybe my house isn't as clean as it should be, or, you know, some of those, you have to let go of some things in order to decide what it is that really makes a, makes a difference to you.
0: It's definitely very helpful to hear that perspective. I'll just share that we're expecting our second child. And I'll tell you that my wife and I have been having this conversation a lot about how does, how is this going to work? What happens in the mornings, you know, surgery, you know, OR starts at seven 30. So taking the kid to the school, like how does that actually work? And so um, maybe I'll be calling you at some point to ask for some advice.
2: Anytime, anytime. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think it's, and you know, my solution it's not everyone's solution, and I'm certainly not advocating that everyone go to four days a week. Um, but I think thinking about it and being thoughtful about it—you know, being just as deliberate in your life as you were in planning the conference—is
1: important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, forward thinking in the—you know—well thought decisions all around. Um, I was going to ask you for parting words for our, our audience here. And I think we already kind of got into that, uh, the, uh, that question. And that's exactly what BTK listeners need to, need. And um, the reason why we wanted to do this interview outside of the wonderful coverage that the conference is providing is because we wanted to provide our listeners with this perspective. So uh, thank you so much for taking time is there is there anything else that you would like to uh, add to uh to this because it's been wonderful talking to you well thank you guys so
2: much um, it, it's always fun to talk to you guys um both personally and through behind the knife um i, I enjoy it very much I'm trying to think if there's something um you know i i guess since I, I get i get this little platform and I get this little bit of time where I get to be you know my podium um i hope that we've made some changes in that diversity space um for our, our association and i hope that we all as members right because i'm back to being a member as of wednesday i'm like no longer program chair i'm just i'm not just i am i am a member and i'm as important as all of you are i hope that we keep pushing and asking our society to keep moving that forward um because I think if there's something amazing out of this program, it's, it's how many different people will be involved and like the synergy of that is so dynamic and so special to me that I hope that we continue to tell our society and not saying that ASUS wants you know, but that we keep saying that this is important to us. Right. And as members, we need to ask for it and we need to push for it. And sometimes that means even backing down from a, a opportunity and saying, you know, I really love to do that. I actually did that in in a case that happened pretty recently, and I said, "But I'd love to have somebody else do this." And the person came up to me the meeting goes, "I got this opportunity because you said no. Saying no sometimes is the best form of sponsorship that we can do. So let's keep pushing that diversity. Let's keep pushing people up, promoting people, and giving people new opportunities so that we can we can be even better. And you know when I come back and the two of you are running the meeting, um, I'll, I'll be, I'll interview you guys for behind the <laughs> It's
0: a great transition for our other invited guests. I was Aaron, just about to yeah, say. King We'll <laughs> be chatting a lot about the DI track. So
1: yeah, no, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thanks.
0: Thank you. I'm thrilled to be able to introduce our second guest during this podcast. So with Dr. Aaron King Mullins, Uh, Dr. Erin King-Mullins graduated summa cum laude from Xavier University of Louisiana. She received her medical degree from Emory University in, in Atlanta. She completed her internship and residency in general surgery at the Orlando Regional Medical Center in Florida. She then completed her fellowship in colorectal surgery at Georgia Colon and Rectal Surgical Associates and subsequently joined the practice there where she currently serves as faculty and research director for the fellowship program. Well, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us and taking some time out of a busy conference schedule. I um, know it was a very exciting year for ASCRS to have its own DEI track. Mm-hmm. So um, we're fortunate to have Dr. King Mullins with us. Um, I guess to start off, tell us how that all started and how you got involved and interested in, in doing that.
3: Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be able to um, discuss all the work that we've done because there's definitely been a lot of work that's going on behind the scenes, and I can by no means take full credit for it at all. Um, You know, things really started actually over the past several years. There had been a small cohort of us who had been meeting often at um, uh, American College of Surgeons conferences, as well as ASCRS conferences, just talking about, you know, some of the things we would like to see um, in the society, number one. Addressing certain healthcare disparities, um, but also support for you know underrepresented minorities in their professional careers and research and the like. Um, So we kind of had our own small kind of impromptu under the radar um, diversity little subcommittee, and we'd be meeting, and we would actually had phone calls and all of those things and wrote down some missions and visions and just kind of fast forward to 2020 and a lot of the social injustice that was going on and the pandemic and seeing all the disparities in healthcare that became just glaringly obvious to the world and not just to our small cohort. um, It really just came a point where there was the urgency of now and we thought that the best time to approach um, the society with some of the needs uh, that we, we thought that the society had. And so we basically wrote a letter to then president Neil Hyman Um, Just addressing the fact that, you know, we got to do more, we got to figure out something. And so he actually um, himself converted, um, converted our small little cohort um, into a diversity and inclusion um, presidential task force. And from there, um, we, over the course of the year, created a needs assessment survey. Um, We implored and got the society to collect demographic information because we just, you know, demographic information was not collected on new members or participants in the meetings. Um, And we. Kind of really just laid out the fact that, you know, we want to make the society better for all. And so from then, he uh, formally created it as a committee and we put the call out and we had so many applicants for the committee Um, and we worked on the committee. On committees, (laughs) we paired with them to kind of really make sure we truly created um, a diverse committee. And so we have um, all ranges, um, including residents, fellows, as well as um, young and uh, seasoned attendings, um, uh, members of the LGBTQ community, um, race, gender, ethnicities. So that's what has comprised the committee. And so we're extremely proud of that. And so we started out with 25 And um, over the next couple of years, we'll add anywhere between three to five new members each year. So we can kind of stay in that ruling basis of every three years in converting the committee. But, you know, that's kind of really how it all came to a head. Some side conversations that thrust into an urgent need based upon what was truly going on in the world. Yeah.
1: So coming to um, having this in-person meeting this year. What were some of the key components from the DEI committee that were like cornerstones of what it has formed into a DEI track here in ASCRS
3: 22? Sure. So um, uh, Dr. Sharon Stein contacted me early um, in wanting to really create uh, symposia, and content that was dedicated to inclusiveness um, across the board. And so, you know, they, with that, she threw out some ideas for some of the symposia that were out there. So there was the Beyond Appearances Symposium that was held on yesterday that discussed implicit bias, not only in patient care, but also in how we interact with each other um, as members of the society and um, how trainees are affected and careers are affected and so we had the idea from there to kind of really have members of our committee comb the entire program so all even e-posters videos any type of content that was submitted we wanted to comb through all of that and highlight things that um, would pertain to DEI and so we would create that DEI track so for anyone that was interested in any particular subtopic they could easily find that Um, so and it was exciting to see all of The work that's being done even outside of the committee, just across the country, uh, the works that are people that people are putting out there truly looking at, you know, these issues and these disparities. Um, So that was great. And then, you know, how do we then influence the future? And so that's where we had the idea to have the student pathway program. So we had um, a cohort of students um, and even their parents and guardians came in on yesterday, ranged from high school, middle school. I'm sorry, excuse me, high school, undergraduate and medical school school, they came in and they got to spend the day with us and play in the innovation center, practice suturing, learn the process of getting into medical school. And then we also got to teach them about healthy eating. Um, we partnered with the colorectal cancer Alliance that brought in that big inflatable colon and so forth, uh, a part of the discuss with the parents, if there was any issue with them having access to screening, if they were due, they provided information, how they can get low to no cost, um, screening here in the Tampa area.
1: What a wonderful yeah. endeavor. Um- young colon cancer needs so much more awareness and this was such a great opportunity to do that so thank you so much for doing that um tell us a little bit uh about how was this received so i know it was you mentioned that it kind of became a committee but what was uh, the president's and the executive leadership's um you know goals out of this committee and um how or Kind of talk about what are the things that have come up in terms of the abstracts that were submitted, in terms of the sessions that were held. Like, what are some of the big key points for our listeners? Sure.
3: So I think so. It was received very well, and you know, one of the concerns was yes, starting out with the presidential task force with Dr. Hyman, um, you have those thoughts and concerns about okay, will the subsequent uh, presidents, you know, find it as important and, and interweave it in, you know, their uh, programming for the year. And so, um, doctors Reed and actually now Dr. Delaney, they have all, you know, we've all had discussions and diversity is uh, very near and dear to their hearts and they want to continue the mission. So, that's been um, great. Um, the other thing is, you know, it's been interwoven into the plans for the future of the society. So, um, there are specific um, strategic planning, um um how best do I put it, strategic planning goals that actually have been interwoven into the plans for the future of the society. And so not so the onus has not necessarily been fully just put on the DEI committee, mm-hmm. um, which can be sometimes stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of times Those who participate in the DEI programming and events and symposia and volunteer are self-selected. These are the people that are interested in this. And so they're going to be the ones that are passionate about it. And so how do we get the society as a whole to at least pay attention and acknowledge it? And so I think it was key that they made it a part of the strategic plan for the society so that we can incorporate these things overall. Um, and so ultimately, I think um, continuing the DEI tract in the future, but also then becoming more intentional in research, you know, whether or not we create certain research uh, grants or research sessions or symposia specifically dedicated to DEI issues or health disparities issues um, so that it's not so so you get um, a more full, well-rounded, immediate look at all the aspects of of DEI. Yeah. Mm mm-hmm.
0: You mentioned, um, you know, wanting to incorporate or have the whole society be behind this effort. And I think that's really important. So, you know, I'll just ask, uh, you know, from a white man's perspective, right? So what are the things that I and, and you know, some of my colleagues can do to help sort of further this mission, even if we're not necessarily on the DEI committee?
3: Sure. Sure. Um, I'd say don't be afraid to have those uncomfortable conversations. You know, it's, you know, we have uncomfortable conversations as surgeons and physicians all the time when we, um, you know, uh, diagnose someone with colon cancer or ulcerative colitis and tell someone they need an ostomy. Um, sometimes when there's certain, um, you know, issues with residents and trainees, sometimes you have to have difficult conversations with people. And that's the same as it applies to, you um, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the important behind it is to to understand, like this this is um, about seeing someone as human um, and understanding that some of these conversations can literally be life and death for them. And so really understanding what some of the barriers are in access to care um, could really and truly be, you know, life and death and um so we kind of addressed that issue a little bit with one of our webinars this year it was called the other side of the lens and we um featured uh doctors bartley Pickering and um dr charles Friel and they discussed some of their direct as white males as how they were thrust into Um, a need and interest in DEI issues. So um, Dr. Pickering discussed um, his child being uh, transgender and him having to really learn the process and get behind. And now he's a staunch advocate of for the LGBTQ community. And then Dr. Friel, a few months into becoming a program director in West Virginia, um, after a few months, uh, the Charlottesville um, situation happened. Um, And so that was very eye-opening for him to discuss some of the issues as it pertains to some of his trainees. And so sometimes we're forced into situations where we have to pay attention to it. Um, But, you know, every little thing helps. And so just being willing to listen is probably the most key factor for someone who would identify as a non-minority who really wants to contribute to the situation.
1: That's very well put. What are some of the upcoming projects? I mean, the DEI track here and Tampa has been a success. Uh, What are some of the projects that you're going to be and your committee is going to be taking up for the rest of the academic year?
3: Sure. So, um, I have some, I, I have some things that I'm not ready to disclose yet, but I'm super excited about it that I think um, will be great for the society. But, you know, really, it's now continuing to get that needs assessment. We really wanted to put it out there that we are here to support anyone who feels as an other. And so when they see what's going on with the DEI track now, it's time to follow up again with some sort of needs assessment survey or whatnot. For Now folks may feel a little bit more comfortable explicitly stating what their needs and wants or desires for um, as it pertains to them feeling more inclusive so that we can um, create other aspects of the committee. Um, We do see growing our um, Coffee and Conversations series. So Dr. Julian Sanchez, um, who's based here out of Tampa at the Moffitt Cancer Center, we did a two-part series at the end of last year, November and December. Zoom format early in the morning so folks can listen to it on their ride to work in the shower or as they're waiting for their patients to get roomed and readied in the office in the morning. So he did a two-part series on LGBTQ issues. Number one, just how do you have the conversation, right? So and what's the difference between sexual orientation and identity and, 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 um, you know, again, how do you Talk to these patients and address them, and then the follow up to that, where um, he discussed certain um, medical ailments um, that are key in this patient population. That you know, and how to screen and monitor for certain things, and not just anal cancer in our MSM population, but certain other things where we we found that it's very common that maybe a transgender um, male to female um, gender uh, transformation sometimes results in not really remembering that there is still a prostate (laughs) and that those patients are at high risk for prostate cancer because they may not be getting their screenings and evaluations as they should. Um, And so these are the types of things that we want to address to make sure that we um, employ adequate patient care for everyone and be unbiased in doing so.
1: And being well-informed as a, as a surgeon, it's your it, it, you are obligated to anyone who comes to your office sure. to know and know what they, their needs are, yes. um, mm-hmm. no matter how different they would be from what your needs are. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more. Let's hone in onto these topics as it pertains to colorectal surgeons. What are, and you mentioned one, one of the topics in like, you know, like uh, thinking about a male to female transgender patient who still has a prostate and how do you counsel them? uh, Besides that, what are some of the surgical issues and surgical questions that colorectal surgeons are going to start to see now and where awareness and
3: education needs to happen? Sure. You know, I think um, as we truly understand what some of the disparities are in patients accessing um, care or completing the treatment plan, we, we have to change our language. So, labing, labeling a patient as non compliant puts the onus on them, puts the blame on them. for some reason they didn't follow through with this treatment plan that you created to make them better. Well, a patient comes to you and you say, "Okay, you know, you're due for your colonoscopy. So we're going to set you up. You need to go get this prep and then, you know, you're going to miss a day of work and we're going to do all this. But let's talk about what the direct cost is to them, even if they are in a free program, because just because you get the colonoscopy for free doesn't mean um, that it's free. They may have to purchase that prescription or purpose that purchase that Muralax prep. If they're a low wage earner, um, they're missing a full day's worth of work to get the procedure is direct costs to them. Um, if their significant other or whomever is escorting them to the procedure now has to take time off work, if it's from the same family unit, that's exponentially increasing the direct cost with money out of their pocket. And so I think. We have to address the language, um, you know, understanding that language is key to how we discuss things with patients, but then also just being open and ask them, are not only does that sound okay to you, does that sound reasonable?" ask them, are you going to be able to complete this plan that I set forth? And if you don't think so, what might be a barrier to that? Mm -hmm. Um, And then you may find out some other things that you're like, okay, well, let's try the next best thing or the next best thing. And so those are the things that we really need to focus on as colorectal surgeons moving forward. So not that we have to completely change our technique and how, what the standard of care is for patients, but the standard of care should be the best applicable care care to that patient at that time in that situation. And so we have to be open-minded to those things to make sure that we are providing the best care.
1: That's very well put. I wanted to ask you kind of shifting gears, how? Um, what are some of the, we talk a lot about implicit bias and, Going off of the session that was held um, in the last two days, can you shed light for our listeners who aren't able to attend this meeting about what what were some of the things that were discussed and how should we approach this in the future to mitigate some of these implicit biases, knowing that one cannot be totally free of them? Right, right.
3: Um, so there are resources online, actually, that we learned about yesterday um, via the AAMC. and I believe the, um, the NIH has some resources online where if someone wants to understand how they can be um, uh, mitigate some implicit biases through their uh, with training and as well with dealing with patients. Um, the uh, Harvard has the IAT, the Implicit Bias Training Program, where you can literally go through the process, test yourself, um, see what your results are. But you know this. Is something, this is actually a test that can be repeated over time and you can see your improvement in your implicit bias. And we did learn on yesterday, I believe um, one of the studies indicated that um, after um, They used implicit bias training for a group of, um, I can't recall whether or not it was a residency program or a fellowship program, but about 67% of the participants realized that there was implicit bias directly impacting how they ranked or how they interviewed. And I believe the um, percentage of underrepresented minorities that matched into that program the following year went up by about 20%, um, just by allowing folks to um, be introspective on what may be uh, barriers to, um, to, you know, how they interview and, or how they rank um, students um, and trainees. And um, the other thing is also, putting, discussing putting less weight on the quote-unquote objective merit, uh, measures like the MCATs in um, the step exams, because, for example, those from a more affluent background may have access to more mentorship or direct tutoring um, or being able to take prep courses, while those from socioeconomically challenged backgrounds, while they, they may not have that capacity and they may have had to work during summers off instead of taking these enrichment courses. And so really, taking a holistic look at these students and applicants can really change the face of your um, training program if that's what you have set out to do.
0: These are really um, helpful topics, I think, to dive into. And I think uh, I'll just say I'm going to be fortunate to talk more with you about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And maybe you can talk a little bit about, we can promote a little bit the ASCRS Gut Check podcast.
3: Yeah, we're going to be
0: launching maybe you can share for our listeners not to steal
3: any thunder like behind the knife of course (laughs) no worries Um, no i'm super excited i think this is gonna that is um the upcoming podcast gut check is going to be a great platform and i think it's going to appeal to um both patients public and physician and so i think it's going to be great to bridge the gap um And hopefully after we get up and running, we can definitely get some input from our listeners to understand, you know, what what topics do they want to hear? You know, and I think we should and we intend to talk, I think, a little bit more about just medicine, but, you know, personal lives. I think finances, clinical topics, non-clinical topics. Maybe we can throw some surge parenting in there as well. Um, But I think all those things are key um, for us to actually establish better relationships when they're with um, our patients. Absolutely. Corona mama. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Corona mamas. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, what are, I mean, this, this has been phenomenal. And I think that this is um, a really good, very well implemented track in uh, ASCRS so far. And uh, we're looking forward to hearing more on this topic as you're, you know, as you're, um, moves on, but what are some of the parting words you have for our listeners on things that either we can work on, on our day-to-day, uh, most of our listeners are actually uh, surgery residents, MS-3s, MS-4s trying, wanting to go into surgery, and uh, how can we start working on some of these things at a much younger age in our career, um,
3: so I would love to get your pearls of wisdom for our listeners. Sure. Um, You know, I think one of the biggest things, one of the takeaways and I, oh, please, I hope I'm not wrong in quoting this. I believe it was Maya Angelou who discussed the fact that most people won't necessarily remember exactly what you said or exactly what you did, but they will remember how you made them feel. And so you can tell a patient that you're going to do and take care of them the best way that you know how you're going to bring out all the bells and whistles and throw all the big guns at them. But if they feel as though you're talking at them and not there to support them, um, or they don't feel that from you, that's what they're going to remember. And so that's, what's going to directly impact them pursuing care with you. And the same thing with our colleagues. And so we just have to remember not only how, what we say and what we do, but how are we making those around us feel?
1: That's, that's excellent. This was uh, awesome. Thank you so much for taking time from like a very hectic schedule here in Tampa. But we appreciate it. Our listeners on Behind the Knife appreciate it. And we're looking forward to hearing more from you and from your upcoming podcast. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. (laughs) That concludes our two episode coverage on ASCRS National Scientific Meeting here in Tampa, Florida. We hope you enjoyed the topics and listening to some of the great minds that put together this wonderful, successful conference. As always, a huge thank you to Dr. John Abelson for joining us and being one of our moderators to cover this conference. We appreciate you. And thank you for listening behind the knife. Until next time, dominate the day.